Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, one of the hosts of the channel. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm very pleased to say that we have Mariah Aiden on the show today, and we'll be talking to her about her terrific book, The Brooklyn Thrill Kill Gang and the Great Comic Book Scare of the 1950s. As I was telling Mariah in the pre-interview, I encountered this case by reading a very old journal about 15 years ago, and I was thinking this would make a fantastic book. I'm a lazy fellow, and I never got around to it. And in any case, I would not have done as good a job as Mariah did in this book. I very much encourage you to go out and buy it. And let me say to Mariah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I, uh, I'm a previous Fulbright Scholar. I earned my Ph.D. in American History at the University at Albany, where I worked with uh, Dr. Richard Hamm. Um, and currently, I am the coordinator for the Pathways and Technology Program at SUNY Orange and the assistant director for the C-STEP and AMP programs at uh, SUNY New Paltz. Wow, you're busy. In addition to writing books, you do all that. And two toddlers. Oh, my God. <laughs> really like, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, they should have awards for those things. They just don't. I don't know why. I have three kids, too, and I can't understand why I don't get an award. Um, I suppose a lot of people do it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, the, <laughs> I was about to make a bad joke about wanting to kill your children. Um, so the, no, you know what? I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's like you un, until you have kids, you don't realize the amount of work that it yeah, is. And, no, I, and I will be honest that I come to the office for my break. Oh, yeah. It's no, I know all break. about this. Tell me, tell me about it. Um, well, I hope that uh, your kids and my kids don't end up like these fellows from Brooklyn in 1954. Uh, your book is called uh, Thrill Kill Gang. Who? What was the Thrill Kill Gang and who was in it? Um, so the Thrill Kill Gang had uh, four members. And, and the thing that's very interesting is, of course, you know, it gets publicized that they're this, this gang. And, and we hear the word gang and it has a lot of connotations. Um, but as you will, those who read the book will find out. Um, you know, whether or not this, this word was actually apropos for this, this kind of conglomeration of four young men. Um, but uh, it was uh, four young men uh, named uh, Jack Coslow, who was kind of the uh, ringleader of the group, Melvin Mitt- Mittman, uh, uh, Bobby Robert Trachtenberg, um, and uh, Jerome Lieberman. Uh, um, and, and give us a little bit of... Uh biographical detail about these guys, because they do come from, as you say, well, in the book, they come from very specific, and I would even say a kind of famous and storied context in, in, you know, sort of the history of the uh, United States of the second half of the century. Like a lot of very famous people came out of this context. Right. So, well, they're from Williamsburg, right. In, in, um, in the 1950s. And, um, you know, so essentially, you know, you have a Jack Coslow, um, is a, uh, a pretty, a complicated young man, right? Um, he uh, had, was probably bisexual, um, and, uh, you know, he had uh, some problems at home, um, possibly an abusive father uh, that was hinted at um, in his psychiatric interviews. Um, you know, and he was also very brilliant. Um, he had a very high IQ uh, and a lot of promise. Um, you know, so so he had this very complicated background. Um, his he was friends with Melvin Mittman, uh, who he seemed to have a less complicated background, but perhaps had his own problems um, at home and his own his own issues. And then you had these these two other young men, uh, Bobby Trachtenberg and Jerome Lieberman, and they seemed to come from really you know good families. Um, they're well spoken of, uh, typically throughout the neighborhood. Um, so it's very interesting how, in some ways, how those two younger boys get mixed up with the two older ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all, you know, from this Williamsburg neighborhood, which is, um, at that time, it's this neighborhood in flux. It had uh, been a spot where Jews from the Lower East Side had been um, coming uh, into lower, you know, middle class and working class uh, Jews had been coming into this neighborhood for a while at that point. 
Um, and now we're, we're leaving um, and going out to, uh, to greener climes, shall we say, out uh, for, further east. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, you had uh, the start of this influx of uh, Hasidic Jewry um, coming from Eastern Europe. And so it was a neighborhood in transition, and it was in transition in, in both uh, that way, in, in terms of, of almost uh, you know, just shifting ethnicity, but also it was uh, in transition because the construction of the BQE, which was ravishing this neighborhood because it was going right through the heart of it and decimating blocks. Um, so, you know, so it, it, was, it was definitely a neighborhood in transition, and I think in some ways, you know, that, uh, that urban decay that's going to happen um, is also aggravating the situation with these children. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess one of the things that uh, shocked me, actually, I found the book while at a uh, really good friend of mine's apartment. I was at, at his place on the Lower East Side, a place where uh, I think he told his grandfather, he's Jewish, and he, he told his grandfather that he was moving to the Lower East Side, and he said, you know, we spent decades trying to get out of there, and you're moving back. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, but I mean, I think the thing that struck me is that these are four nice Jewish boys. Um, whose parents had kind of made it. They did pretty well. They got all the way to Williamsburg. They didn't, haven't made it yet to Long Island, but they're going. Yes. I mean, these were upwardly, upwardly mobile families, right? Um, you know, you had uh, the, the youngest boy in the group. Uh, his father owns a very prosperous um, electronics store. Um, you know, the older boy's uh, Jack's father, the ringleader. Um, you know, his father owned a very successful um, garage, and he was you know, a mechanic. Um, that family actually was moving, um, and at the time that these crimes start happening, um, his family had just moved out further west, I'm sorry, further east, um, I think into the Flatbush area. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, these were, were very much like upwardly mobile. Uh, all the boys were kind of slated to go to college. They, uh, you know, some of them were actually at the very prestigious boys technical high school, um, you know, so these were, were young men who were definitely on, a, on this college-bound upward mobility path um, before these crimes happened. And in fact, like ultimately, uh, the two youngest boys, um, from what I could see uh, out in the records of the world, um, you know, I know Jerome Lieberman ultimately becomes an attorney, uh, for example. You know, so, so the two younger boys do ultimately end up, um, I think, on the path you know, to, to that upper middle class um, kind of lifestyle. But uh, the older boys, you know, who should have also been on that path instead, I think that uh, what ends up happening is, is their crimes and, and what ends up happening in the story um, is going to, to kind of put them on a very different trajectory than what they should have been on. Right. I mean, I'm sure everybody who listens to this has seen Rebel Without a Cause and probably has this image in their head of the high school tough with a tight T-shirt on and rolled up jeans and a cigarette pack and the, rolled up in the arm of their short sleeve white T-shirt. Um, I don't think anybody associates nice Jewish boys from uh, Williamsburg with that. So what, what exactly, how did these people, I mean, let's just put a name on it. How did they become juvenile delinquents, as they would have said? Well, I think, you know, and that's, that's what's interesting. I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, it, it, the statistics, the reason we don't think of it is that statistically, and even um, at that time, statistically, you know, Jews were disproportionately less uh, part of the juvenile delinquency right. scene than other ethnic groups, right? So, um, so it is true. I mean, part of the reason that we, we don't associate it uh, necessarily with, with quote-unquote good, good Jewish boys is because at that time, um, you know, most uh, Jews were not uh, participating in, in this particular form of, um, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Rebellion? rebellion? I don't know what you call it. <laughs> right, yeah, I think rebellion is the word, right? Um, so, you know, so these boys were a little bit anomalous, like, as far as that was concerned. Um, you know, I think it's it's difficult to say exactly entirely what set them off. Um, you know, for Coslow, in some ways, it's the easiest. And the book spends more time on Coslow than it does on the other boys. Um, the reason why is because uh, Coslow was interviewed by Dr. Frederick Wortham. And the notes of the psychiatric interview are uh, available at the Library of Congress. And so because of that, it was a lot easier uh, to get a perspective uh, from Coslow himself um, on why, you know, how this sort of ended up happening. And in some ways, it's a kind of a classic story that happens even today, which is that Coslow uh, was bullied. Um, he was uh, bullied substantially as a young uh, child. Um, and 
you know, and that eventually he just starts acting out and uh, he starts becoming, right? It, it just gets to a point where then he's going to start becoming the bully. And it starts out in, in a variety of ways. I mean, he does uh, act out a little bit in elementary school. He was a, uh, certainly a rabble rouser. Um, he also had a longtime fascination with the Nazis, um, which is, is very incongruous, right, for a young Jewish boy to have. <laughs> but mildly. The Nazis. Right. Um, but, you know, but at the same time, you know, when you're, when you're reading the psychiatric interview, it, it, it actually makes a substantial amount of sense, you know, to him as a young child who felt very powerless, um, both at home and at, at school, um, and in his neighborhood, actually, in particular, um, you know, the, the Nazis, uh, and, and hearing about the, the, this powerful military, right, that was taking over Europe and hearing about this on the, on the radio, you know, and he felt, uh, he identified in some ways. Uh, with this group, right, which he felt, which to him was like this, almost like this powerful underdog. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's how he saw himself. And ultimately, when it came to committing the crimes, it's certainly how he saw himself. He, he understood himself as a superhero. Um, he was beating these people up. I think at one point, uh, you know, one of the younger boys tells the police that uh, they, they had, the older boys had said, um, you know, we got these bums. It was something like we got these bums, and you know, we tried to to teach them to stop drinking and and clean up their lives. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think he really he really believed this. Like he saw this, like as a, he was acting in this sort of good Samaritan kind of way. That he's going out, he's cleaning up the streets, right? He's kind of being this this superhero, and and part of that, of course, is is highlighted by his use of you know he would wear his this vampire costume. Right, because he very much yeah. associated himself with these very specific comic book characters, and and he would you know don these outfits as part of you know this ritual before going out and uh, create uh, and causing these assaults. So you know, so they were very. He was very selective in his victims, and he also you know had this very interesting sense of righteousness, right? Where he you know, but like he brags about the fact that you know, but he never stole. Right, I never pickpocket. I never stole. That's yeah. beneath me. Uh-huh. That's not. That's not what this is about. This is about right. being a vigilante, and so I think like it's for it's it's kind of this almost classic story of this you know young bullied man who's trying to find you know some kind of power and masculinity you know through this kind of what he sees is this vigilante justice mm-hmm. kind of uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the comic book connection. The, the, the kind, what are the kinds of comic books that he was reading? And I, I don't think they're very old at this point, are they? I, remind me. I don't know. So if you could just talk a little bit about that. Oh, the comic books or the boys? Comic books. <laughs> um, no, the comic books are not very old. I mean, well, this time period, right, um, you know, comic books had shifted. And, um, you know, you start going from this, you know, this more superhero style comic books and you had the Donald Duck comic books and all those. I think those are kind of in some ways the classic ones that people think of. And then suddenly in this period in the, you know, post-war, you start seeing um, this turn to crime comics first, um, which were increasingly brutal in nature and very graphic. And then we go from crime comics and that kind of dies down. And then you start having this rise of romance comics. And then at this moment, when you have the Brooklyn Thrill Club Gang, uh, the market is being dominated by horror comics. And the issue with horror comics is that, you know, they're increasingly brutal. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's scenes in there, you know, like of people having their limbs eaten off by rats. I mean, there's, uh, you know, people, uh, there's a lot of, for some interesting reason, eyeball torture. Eyeballs, And yeah, I'm sure eyeballs. somebody could, yeah. could write a whole book about that. Yeah, uh-huh. Eyeballs. <laughs> Um, yes, eyeballs. I mean, I guess that's, you know, um, you know, but there was just all sorts of different in, and inventive uh, forms of torturing other people. And, you know, and, and part of it is that this was, um, I think David Haydu describes it as a spiral of gruesomeness, where each cover and each comic book tries to outdo the next, right? Um, because they're competing for readers. And so it's like, well, as disgusting as, you know, that comic was last month, we could be more disgusting. We could be more violent. We could be more graphic. So, you know, so this is uh, kind of the, the genre that's really happening at that moment. Um, and that's, uh, you know, so he really identifies with um, these vampire and, uh, and horror comics. He also has a collection, and this is the one that ends up being kind of the big thing, um, ultimately, for the, um, as far as New York State law is concerned, um, with these pornographic comics. And they're called Knights of Horror, 
and there's actually a great book out there by Craig Yo that's uh, just about Joe Schuster, um, who was creator, uh, co-creator of Superman, um, who did the artwork for these comics. Um, and, uh, you know, so these, but these are extremely, uh, extremely violent, pornographic, uh, you know, sadistic uh, comic books. And, of course, Jack has the whole collection <laughs> of these. Um, so, you know, so the, and to be honest, he does model his crimes uh, in, very much after uh, what he's seeing in these comic books. So, you know, the, uh, there's, uh, they'll go after young women in parks and they whip them, um, you know, and he actually admits, you know, yes, I got that right from the comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the uh, having people kiss his feet, the, um, you know, just uh, there's a variety of the, cig- uh, the cigarette torture that he engages in with some of the victims. Um, you know, so a lot of these are coming and, and he very readily admits that uh, these things are inspired by what he's seen in the comic book. I mean, it's so interesting because my son and daughter are kind of into comic books, and I can walk a few blocks from my house to a comic book store that is, I think it's next to an Ann Taylor, <laughs> and we can buy all that stuff <laughs> and more. So at this time, though, there were still obscenity laws, weren't there? Had these uh, comic books come to the attention of the authorities? Oh, well, definitely. I mean, well, the problem is, is that, you know, at this time, you know, America – was in a very different place. And um, a lot of it, people were not thrilled about obscenity laws. And I think we have kind of this mischaracterization of the 1950s um, as an era when everybody just wants to legislate things. But the reality is, is that, you know, people really were advocating for self-regulation. So, you know, even though there is the Hollywood production code, for example, right? And so Hollywood had been regulated at that point for a couple of decades. But television had not been. And no one was going after television because television self-regulated. They created their own code that was kind of modeled after the Hollywood production code. And they also, um, you know, their advertisers, frankly, served uh, to a great extent as a form of self-censorship, right? I mean, advertisers just didn't want to be associated with things that were too controversial or too anything. So, um, So that also, you know, just kind of censored itself. So comic books become problematic primarily because they had made no effort to create an adult audience. And so it becomes increasingly difficult for you to argue that you should have full freedom of the press and that you should have uh, the ability to publish whatever that you, you want and as gruesomely as you want to publish when your audience is only children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so there had been at this point, um, at the time that the thrill killers are happening, there had been over a decade of uh, attempts to try to cajole the industry into self-regulating. And it kept failing. And it kept failing partially of the fault of the industry and partially not its fault. The problem with comic books, unlike something like television, is that they could be cheaply made right. in somebody's basement. Right. And in fact, those pornographic comics that Jack Coswell had were being cheaply made in some mafia guy's basement, right? So... Um, you know, so, so there is that issue where it becomes very difficult um, because you do have these big major publishers like Dell, for example, who is, you know, well, Dell made very wholesome comics. Um, so they were all about regulation. They're like, it does nothing but help us, you know, because they want parents to trust them. They, their sales actually increase the more trust and that parents have in comic books. Right. Um, so, you know, so there were these large companies um, that were very much for it. But then there are these much smaller operations, these much more fly-by-night operations, and they weren't interested in regulation. They want to sell. They want to sell quickly. Mm-hmm. So you have that issue, right? So you have the issue that, that you can't get people on board. And the very first time that uh, the comic books try to self-regulate, um, it, that's pretty much what happens. I mean, it, it's, you only get a certain percentage of the groups to sign up and the people who were creating the most uh, gruesome. And this is the first attempt was really focused on the crime comics and the, the companies that were making the most egregious um, comics, uh, they just simply wouldn't sign up and they wouldn't self-regulate. You know, so by the time you have William Gaines and, uh, you know, trying to organize and getting the second round of in, in 1954, you start seeing this real push because they, they really are seeing the writing on the wall. We've reached a point where parents and legislatures um, are getting very upset. Uh, the uh, Senate subcommittee, um, the state, excuse me, 
the U.S. Senate subcommittee uh, hearings on juvenile delinquency had at that point started focusing on comic books in March of 1954. And, um, you know, so you have this showdown that happens, right? It's televised between William Gaines and uh, Frederick Wortham. And, you know, so, so now it's a really of national prominence. And so the comic book publishers are like, wow, okay, the writing's on the wall here. We need to regulate. We need to make this happen. And so they actually do, you know, create a comic czar position. Um, they're trying at that point desperately to try to get this, you know, uh, these comic books have to go through the czar. They have to be, you know, approved. Um, you know, so they're, they're, they're trying to clean up um, at that point, but it's really too little too late. And it's been a whole decade at that point of just a lack of regula- self-regulation. So, you know, so there's no, the comic books aren't falling under obscenity laws. They have to, they're going to end up ultimately creating laws that are going to ban very specific, specific titles, um, ban, they're going to ban crime, ban horror, um, you know, and it just goes this whole complex legislation that happens in New York State um, of this list of things that you can no longer do. And that's going to completely decimate the industry. Um, but it's also after about a decade of trying to get the industry to self-regulate. Hmm. Comic books are, I don't know what to say about that. Um, so uh, then the, uh, I guess the timing of the thrill kill gang was not terribly good because they, they commit, they commit their crimes or their crimes come to light. And I guess you say the, the summer of 1954, Yep, August. Yep. Yeah, so could, you've already mentioned this a little bit. Could you talk a little bit about what they did specifically and um, and a little bit about why they did it? You talked about that as well, but if you just reiterate. So, I mean, so what they did um, is uh, now, and, and I guess it's important to kind of parse it out a little bit. Um, the two older boys were mainly the ones who did everything, right? And then the two younger boys get wrapped up, unfortunately, in the two major crimes, the two dates that somebody actually gets killed. Um, there's two dates where people die. And unfortunately, the younger boys were present at both those dates. And that's how they end up really getting wrapped into it. Um, but the two older boys um, in particular uh, had gone around. They had uh, whipped some people. Uh, so young women, they would find uh, young women in parks at night if they you know, felt there was a young woman out too late. <laughs> and, uh, and they would whip them with horse whips. Hmm. Um, they, uh, would, uh, and so, yeah, so there's a very sexual aspect, uh, especially those crimes. They often, uh, especially the, uh, the one boy Mel, uh, would grope their breasts, um, you know, and, and, and somewhat, you know, so they wouldn't, it's not, they wouldn't rape them, but there was sexual assault, um, certainly involved in it. Um, you know, so there's that aspect, uh, they would go after vag- uh, vagrants. Um, or uh, people, uh, either vagrants or, or people who were drunk. They found, like, a drunk sleeping um, on a bench, um, and they would beat them up, pretty much. Um, they would uh, burn them with cigarettes um, and, uh, and, and beat them up. So that's pretty much uh, what they were doing. So they were going around kind of terrorizing those populations um, that summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was two, and there was two instances where uh, people ended up dying. Um, in both cases, uh, accidentally, it was not their intent actually to kill anyone, um, believe it or not, uh, even though their, their name was the Brooklyn Thrill Kill Gang, right? Um, but, uh, you know, they, they did not actually intend to kill anyone. Um, the one man died um, after he was hit. Um, his head fell and hit um, one of the, uh, the grates in the sidewalk um, and uh, the storm drain, and, uh, and it uh, fractured his skull. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other man um, ended up uh, drowning mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, in the river. So um, you know, so so they did. The two deaths actually were accidental, um, but uh, yeah, they, they certainly were out to uh, to assault people. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the notion is they didn't leave any manifesto or anything. But the notion is that they're at least on the part of the two older boys, they're going to clean the city up. Or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of. I mean, yeah. There's no. There's certainly no manifesto. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what Mel believed, right? Um, you know, so the one boy. I mean, I think maybe was just out to beat people up. I mean, I'm not really sure. Um, but the the older boy. I mean, I think uh, again, yeah, his own way. Like he kind of felt like he had this kind of vigilante thing going on. Um, it's. But at the same time, he also admits that he he did it because it was thrilling and he wanted to feel powerful. Um, you know, so he, he was, one of the things I think that made the older boy very interesting, you know, Jack, 
um, is because, you know, I think maybe because he was very intelligent, um, he had this, this, he had a real self-awareness in, in his own way about what he was doing and the self-consciousness about what he was doing um, and why, you know. And, um, and it's very interesting because in, uh, in his interview with Wortham, like he, he really kind of puts out, he puts it out there, you know, and he will admit that he wanted to feel powerful. He wanted to, to do these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so he doesn't, he's not completely delusional in, in thinking that it's just about being a vigilante, but, you know, but then there's also, yeah, the part of him is like, it is a little bit about being a vigilante. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, um, where did they do this? And you already mentioned women. But did they have particular targets? You mentioned people that were, you know, street people, or I don't know what you want to call homeless people. Did they pick? I mean, is it was it more specific than that? You know, I think that primarily, um, I think fundamentally they were just looking for easy targets. Um, I think that's fundamentally what they were doing. But um, I mean, certainly, like you know, Jack um, expressed disgust at uh, at the people who who drank. Um, he found that uh, very disgusting and distasteful, mm-hmm. um, and he expressed that very clearly uh, in his interviews with the police. Um, and uh, you know, so I think like that was his, you know, one of his main things. Like it tended to be, uh, it tended to be vagrants, but it mostly really tended to be people who were were passed out drunk. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that would get his ire up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where did all this occur? Where was their stomping grounds, so to say? You know, it was, uh, there was this place called Triangle Park, right? So it's right near, it's like this real scrap of land that's happening near the bridge. Um, and uh, so there was, so they would go there. Um, they also liked going to, um, oh goodness, like some of the other parks in the area. You know, basically, I mean, mm-hmm. my understanding is they would go, and also, uh, to, you know, again, because this place is right now, it was in that moment of being devastated. So, um, you know, I know on like a Rodney Street, there was, um, you know, the, these abandoned housing that was about to be torn down um, to build the BQE. Um, you know, so a lot of times vagrants were uh, were congregating in those areas, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of squatting uh, mm-hmm. until the buildings were torn down. Um, and so those tended to be the places they would go. I know McCarran Park is where they tended to go after young women um, because that was a place where young women were going to be hanging out, uh, especially after hours. Um, so it was just all throughout the Williamsburg uh, area. They mm-hmm. were kind of just like, you know, just troll around um, trying to find victims. Right. I mean, did Jack's parents ever ask him, why are you dressed like a vampire and why do you keep going out late at night? <laughs> um, not that we could tell. Um, I mean, I, I, there's certainly, sort of there's no evidence. I mean, you know, the vampire, the thing with the vampire costume, I guess I should clarify. I mean, he wasn't in a full on Halloween vampire costume. Um, his, for him, his costume, it was this pair of black leather pants. Um, I think it was like a black turtleneck. Um, it was almost like very beatneck-like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for all we know, his parents just thought he was going to a poetry reading. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, right, but, right. Um, you know, so it may not have been as obvious, I guess is what I'm saying. But to him, this was a vampire costume. This was mm. his interpretation of that kind of look. And, um, you know, like, and he had, like, I think a black overcoat with it or something. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess, you know, his parents, yeah, they never really asked, like, why are you dressed mm-hmm. like that or why are you going out? As long as you get good grades. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, Jack, well, see, that's the thing. Now, Jack was having problems at that point. Oh, really? And that's also part of the thing, the reason that the crimes, right, start happening. Because in his life, everything had kind of gone to hell in a handbasket mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, he, uh, he graduated quite early um, from, uh, from high school. Um, it, from boys high school, actually, um, which was a very good high school in Brooklyn at the time. And, um, he, uh, he had graduated early and he was going to NYU and he just, you know, it just started falling apart for him at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. he was also suffering most likely from mental illness. I yeah. mean, he was diagnosed by multiple doctors as having dementia precox. Um, and, uh, you know, so so he had so he was really at this age where all this was was really happening, um, but yeah, he ends up flunking out of NYU, uh-huh. and um, and so now he has to find a job, and he's not having a lot of success holding on to a job. So you know, so this is you know part of the the problem, right? Is right. that his whole life is sort of kind of falling apart at this moment, right. um, when he starts acting out. Mm-hmm. Right. 
so how do these crimes come to the attention of the authorities? And when? I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, was there a moment at which that Jack knew that he was being pursued, that the police were sort of on his tail? No. Uh, you know, it's interesting how, how it happens. I mean, you know, the police had, I think, you know, one of the interesting parts about this crime is that I think so much of what ends up happening with this case is because of its timing, right? Because you were in this moment where people really cared about juvenile delinquency and they really cared about, um, you know, about comic books, um, particularly juvenile delinquency, right? I mean, you have the, these, the Senate subcommittee hearings, um, you have, uh, as I go through in the book, I have a whole chapter that's just about, mm-hmm. you know, the 10,000 things that they were happening in New York City. And every other week there was like, right, there was a speech, there was something about, ju- people were just, you know, really freaking out about uh, juvenile delinquency at this moment. So, um, you know, because I think fundamentally the assault on a handful of uh, vagrants just wouldn't really be a focus for the police. Right. That's what I was thinking. Um, There's just no nice way to say that. Right. I mean, um, and so I I mean, it's not something that would have really just been on their radar um, except that, you know, right now was a moment when the police were already taking a lot of heat for this, you know, this, the, this idea that the kids were out of control. And of course the homeless people are reporting that, it's these you know teenagers that are beating them up, and so what ends up happening? So there's really no point. I mean, I think Jack really thinks that he's flying, uh, you know, under the radar. And in fact, his arrest, you know, really happens. You know, it's it's quite coincidentally. I mean, well, they actually beat up some people right near a police station. As a matter of fact, I mean, that's how bold, like you know, him and Mel had gotten. And it was the same night that uh, that they killed Willard Mentor. So, you know, after they killed Will and Mentor, they go out and they beat somebody else up. And it's in the park that's right across the street, uh, Louis Sobel Park, and it's right near the precinct. And, uh, and that's it. And they're outside having a cigarette, like practically in front of the precinct. And the and, cops just, like, come nab them? Yeah, they, yes. Yes. The detective <laughs> basically comes out. No, he comes out and he sees two, uh, two, uh, two vagrants standing there. Um, who seem kind of upset, and he asked them what's going on, and they say that somebody got beat up in the park, and, and, and he had already heard, like, from, you know, they already kind of had it out there that they were looking for a couple teenagers, one of whom was a redhead, mm-hmm. right? And that was also part of it, too, because Jack Coslow was a redhead, and, um, you know, that they were looking for a couple teenagers, and, uh, and so now you have these guys, and they're standing there saying that somebody had just gotten beaten up in the park, and he just looked across the street and saw, like, this redheaded kid and this other kid <laughs> sitting there. And he was like, uh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's it. And he literally walked across the street and, and arrested them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they had just become that level of emboldened. So I, I kind of don't, I don't think that Jack, I think in some ways Jack thought he was, um, I don't know, I, don't, I hate to say it, but I think he, he felt he was so clever, perhaps, that like he was just not going to get caught and that mm-hmm. he could be so bold as to assault someone in front of the police station. So what does Jack say when he's arrested? Does he lawyer up or does he confess or what's he do? Um, well, they end up confessing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, you know, a time period. And, and that's an interesting part of the story too, is how these kids get railroaded. Um, you know, so again, the, the police and district attorney are under a lot of pressure at this moment, again, about juvenile delinquency. It's on everybody's mind. And so when, and also, of course, you know, the newspapers had already been filled. There'd just been a stomp killing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where this, uh, this, this war hero, I mean, this guy comes home and he just survived like the war and he's now has a nice, you know, as a businessman and he has like, you know, a bunch of kids and he's just living this great middle-class American life. And he's walking home from work and this teenager, uh, gets annoyed uh, about him whistling and literally stomps him to death, mm. right? And so, I mean, this had just happened, like, probably about a month earlier. So, I mean, people were really uh, already just, like, in Brooklyn, just, like, freaking out at this moment, okay? Now, that kid came from a divorced family, right? His dad was out of the picture. The kid was drinking at the time of the mm-hmm. assault. You know, he had a long record of being a problem child. Mm-hmm. You know, so in some ways, at least, like, he fell into a nice, neat category. Um, but, you know, these these boys didn't. Um, and, you know, these boys were upwardly mobile, you know, right. as we talked about earlier. So, you know, so so I think, like, you know, so there's all this. And so people are going to freak out about this case. 
And so because of that, the district attorney's office and the police um, are going to kind of railroad these kids. And so they don't lawyer up um, at this point in time, right? We don't have Miranda yet. Okay, Miranda's not for right. another good decade. Um, so, you know, so there's no Miranda. Um, there's no right to an attorney, uh, you know, necessarily for questioning. Um, and, and they actually do, like, some crazy publicity stunts where they take the boys down to the docks when they dredge up the body. They have them point to the body. They have the press take pictures. They have uh, they actually, the, the district attorney takes statements from these boys standing in front of the body hmm. um, at the docks. Right. With no lawyers. I mean, that's the thing. You look at this. There's not a lawyer present. Right. And at that point, I think they actually even had lawyers. Um, but, you know, they didn't even notify the lawyers. Um, you know, so there's there's so much happening. And, and at this point, all of this is legal. Right. This is all I mean, it's 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 distasteful. And we can certainly see it today as a, as is injustice. Um, but at this point, it's technically not illegal to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, so there's this whole like kind of publicity aspect. Like the boys are actually um, because the the Sam Shepard case, right, which is going to kind of really be the thing that kind of curtails uh, press in the courtroom and the kind of shenanigans you can the police and, and uh, can can do with the press, right? Um, that's happening contemporaneously to this case, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you know, so that ruling hasn't been made yet, okay? So basically, you know, so these boys, like there's pictures of them and, and you actually see in the book, um, some of the, a lot of the pictures I think are actually coming from the police station, right? So, you know, they, they have the boys sitting there and they, you know, bring in cameramen. They allow the press access and they take pictures of the boys sitting at the police station and they take uh, pictures of the boys. There's actually one in the book uh, where Eddie Walsh, um, one of the people that, uh, you know, that uh, the boys had beaten up is actually sitting there pointing a finger right at Jack Coslow mm-hmm. um, in the police station. You know, so it's this really damning kind of uh, evidence that's going to happen um, and, and, and play out in the press, mm-hmm. right, which is going to make it very difficult to create an impartial jury and uh, a fair trial. Right, and it becomes national news almost instantly. Yes. Yes, yes. everybody reads about this case. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all the way to Los Angeles to uh, actually even Australia. I think they even had uh, articles in Australia and uh, in other countries about it. So, yeah, it's, it's very quickly becomes a national sensation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. I guess I, um, one question I have is, do you know how their parents reacted? Wow. Well, their parents, I mean, of course, are devastated. Mm-hmm. Um and I think for the most part, you know, I don't think their parents quite believe it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, certainly the, the parents of the younger boys, um, and particularly, like, I think we get a lot from, um, of statements from Jerome Lieberman's father, uh, who talks very readily to the press um, because I think he's just blown away, right? I mean, um, you know, his son, and again, Jerome Lieberman, of the four of them, um, is the one where, you know, nobody has a bad word to say about this kid, mm-hmm. right? I mean, all the old ladies in the neighborhood adore him, everybody. You know what I mean? He's just, you know, he kind of gets wrapped up in this because it's, he's best friends with Bobby. Bobby becomes friends with Mel, and Mel's friends with Jack. Right. See? So it's, he kind of gets roped into this this mess. Um, and he does. I mean, at, 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 certainly at the one uh, instance, he actually, like, he slaps the one guy, and, and he, he does participate a little bit. Um, you know, but his father is uh, very uh, vocal to the press, and it's just like this, this can't be. My kid could not have done these things. Like mm-hmm. he's not that kid. And um, you know, so you know, certainly, I think for the most part, the parents are are very shocked. Um, and I don't think any of them, including Jack's parents, I think even for all of Jack's problems, um, I don't think that even Jack's parents suspected that he was doing anything like this. Right. Right. So what does the, um, I guess, district attorney charge them with? Well, that's right. So so that goes back to, uh, you know, this becoming a, a big national case and being in the press and, and the kind of uh, the, the gestalt at the moment, uh, you know, concerning juvenile delinquency. Um, you know, so they get charged with, uh, with murder one. Mm. Um, and uh, they're doing a murder one charge uh, based on a felony kidnapping. So the idea being that in the walk that they they made Willard Mentor walk with them from uh, Triangle Park uh, to the uh, the pier, 
and uh, that was a, a walk of uh, multiple blocks, mm-hmm. and that that walk was in fact kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's the reality is is that it's a trumped up charge, right? I mean, certainly, like you know, no one would condone what these kids did, and I certainly would not argue that they shouldn't have gone to to jail. Um, but what they did was an assault charge, and 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 at best, a man won. Um, you know, I mean, they did accidentally. Uh, kill someone. Um, but there was no point that this was actually, that this was a murder charge. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it's in the press, because it's getting the attention it's getting, you know, you can't charge them with anything less. Right. And so they're actually facing the death penalty. Right. And that's one of the things that that's a big deal about this case as well, is that you have these, these four boys, um, you know, ranging in age from, you know, 15 to 18 years old, you know, now facing the death penalty. Right. But a question that occurs to me is, um, how is it that we know that they didn't intend to kill these individuals except by their own testimony? That is, they tell us that they didn't, but is there any other corroborating evidence that shows that they didn't intend to kill these two people? You would expect them to say, we, you know, obviously we didn't want to kill them and they just died. Well, I think because of the, of the how the both men died. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to me that also, you know, that's part of it. And also the fact that, you know, they, I mean, these, two men who died and they actually only charged in the murder of, of one. Uh-huh. Um, the other one was a manslaughter charge and, and the other one actually Jack Oslow wasn't even involved in. Um, it was just um, uh, Mel just and then Mel. the two younger boys. Um, you know, but uh, in the case of Willard Mentor, I mean, they, they beat him up and then they threw him into the river and I'm, I'm not sure that they would know whether or not someone knew how to swim. And then that's really what happened. I mean, the man died because he didn't know how to swim. Right. Um, you know, I, I just, Mm-hmm. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel, I feel like if they really wanted to kill someone, <laughs> like there's, yeah, you know, then you I, would just beat them until they died. I mean, or, or you do something, I think probably, I would imagine more hands-on. But, you know, you're right. I mean, it could be, um, there is no proof other than their own statement. Right. Um, but I do think because of, for better or for worse, their blatant honesty. Um, I mean, if you really look at, like, the, the confessions and mm-hmm. uh, their own statements, I mean, they're very honest about, you know, what they did and why they did it. But they, and it's so- I was going to say, they don't, um, you guys see this on TV a lot. <laughs> I don't know if it actually happens. And also it occurs in the famous prisoner's dilemma. Do they try to shift the blame to other people in the group or do they all kind of agree like, yeah, we did, I did this and he did that and he did this and he did that. You see what I'm saying? Well, I would say that there is some shifting of blame um, in that everyone, you know, everyone ends up jumping on Jack Coslow. Mm-hmm. Um Although Jack Cosmo also fairly readily admits that he's the ringleader, um, you do see. I mean, everyone admits, you know, for the most part, to their part of of you know having beaten people up or not, you know, what they they did. Um, as far as that stuff's concerned, um, the big issue is becomes between Jack and Mal as to who pushed the guy in the water, mm-hmm. right? Because they're trying to, you know say that that's the, like, right, so that's, that's the actual murderous act, is the pushing of, mm-hmm. of the man into the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mel's going to say it was Jack, and I think, uh, I don't know if uh, does Jack say it was Mel or not. I think I think Jack says the guy just fell in. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody pushed him. He just sort of jumped himself, like, mm-hmm. tried to get away from them and tripped off the pier. But, um, you know, so, I mean, so there's a little bit of shifting of blame as far as just that, that one final act. Um, the rest of it, I think, for the most part, um, you know, the two younger boys, um, certainly, uh, you know, they're very much like, listen, it was the older guys who did this, and we really didn't have much to do with it. And certainly in the case of Jerry Lieberman, by all accounts, it sounds like he really didn't have much to do with anything. Um, Bobby, it's a little bit more, you know, questionable. Um, and in fact, he does end up in a um, juvenile detention center for the, the full length of as long as they could put him in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so until the age of 21, because his parole officer doesn't feel that he has adequate amounts of remorse for his participation in the crimes. I see. Um, but yeah. So, so what, um, it sounds like a thankless and impossible task, but what kind of defense did their attorneys mount? Ooh, <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I have to say like this, when I was writing this, okay, it was such an interesting and, and amazing project to work on because it starts out being interesting 
and then it gets more interesting. Yeah, I'm and telling then it you just what, it's <laughs> real, right? And then it gets, and then so as soon as you ask this question, you're like, "What do the attorneys do?" And that's when it just got gets crazy, right? <laughs> like this is the moment when you're like, "This could be a movie," and yeah. don't believe it. Um, so you have different levels of defense attorneys, and the two younger boys end up with extremely uh, venerable, right, defense attorneys. Um, but you end up with uh, with Jack Coslow. Okay, and he ends up with uh, this. Um, oh my goodness, why am I blanking on the guy's name? Let's call him Jack Coslow's attorney. Jack Coslow's attorney. Okay, <laughs> uh, so Jack Coslow's. Well, okay, so I, basically, so the so the two younger boys they end up with these very venerable attorneys, right? So you end up with people like James D.C. Murray, okay, who had done tons of homicide trials, and he was just this really famous and very well known defense attorney at the time. Um, and then Bobby also gets a, a very venerable defense attorney, someone who had actually done, um, in fact, some, uh, they had done work with a, a, another juvenile uh, who had been uh, charged with facing first-degree murder. So, you know, so they have this a very different level of attorney. But Jack's attorney, Morit, Fred Morit, um, is a little bit different. He has a sideline. Well, he was actually really well-known for being a singer. Um, an entertainer, and he had had his own radio show. And, um, and sounds like he could run good. for president. That was a joke. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, well, no, and he was a politician, actually. He there was you go. a politician. He represented uh, Brooklyn in the, uh, in the state Senate. Um, and, uh, you know, so he, he was a politician. He was uh, a, a singer. He had actually written an uh, operetta. Um, and that, uh, and he, he'd actually written some music that had, uh, was used in movies as wow. a matter of fact. So, you know, he was just very, uh, a Renaissance man, kind of a Renaissance man. Absolutely. But unfortunately he was a really good, um, showman. Okay. And a really crappy attorney. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, so he, he's defense, um, Wow. I mean, like, you know, at one point, I mean, he actually, I mean, the closing arguments, for example, where he just like, you know, does like a paraphrase of 10 little Indians, you know, um, I mean, which, or, you know, so, so that was just mind blowing. Um, I mean, he just does a bunch of theatrics, right. And he actually tries doing this defense where he's trying to, um, you know, use the stenographer, um, and, and try to prove that the stenographer did not take adequate, uh, you know, or, or, or the, the, the stenography notes were fudged from the uh, the interviews, which is probably true, actually. I mean, and, and this one is probably true. I mean, he could not get a hold of the person from the newspaper, but certainly we know at least one newspaper reporter um, reported who was at the docks, right, when they were doing these ridiculous interviews in front of the corpse. Um, you know, one of the newspaper reporters actually, um, you know, had reported the Jack saying, like, well, I didn't push him in. Like, I didn't do it. Like, you know, he fell in. I didn't push him or I tried to save him or something along those lines, um, which, of course, is non-stenographer's official statement. Um, you know, so Moore, in fact, wasn't wrong. Uh, the problem with Moore is just that he was so theatrical um, that it just alienated everyone in the courtroom, including the jury. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that was ultimately the problem. However, um, you know, and it's also interesting that he chose ultimately not to do a psychiatric defense. Um, they hired Dr. Frederick Wortham, who was probably mm -hmm. one of the most preeminent, um, you know, criminologists of the era, um, and, uh, as well as being an anti-comics crusader. Um, but he really was a formidable, uh, criminologist. Um, he interviewed Jack. Uh, he was ready to go. Um, he was just waiting to be called to give his testimony, and they basically uh, called and said, we don't need you. So um, they chose not to do a psychiatric defense. Um, but I think the main reason why is because for all his theatrics and all the shenanigans, right, I think maybe more it was a sly fox, and he knew uh, that they were going to win on appeal, which mm -hmm. they did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because they had a very appealable issue. And, and in fact, the prosecution handed it to them in a bow. And it's very interesting because it's, it was done so quietly. And what is right? the issue? Uh, well, the issue was, was whether or not it was felony kidnapping. Right. And it's very difficult to say, you know, so, so the prosecution puts up a witness, right? They put up a police officer who basically is going to testify 
that there's on, on this walk between the, the park and the pier, there's people going in and out of these steakhouses, there's people going in and out of gas stations, there's all this nightlife, there's, you know, like all the a whole bunch of different call boxes, like police call boxes mm-hmm. along the way. You know, so there was ample opportunity uh, in theory for the victim to have called out for help, you know, to say, hey, I'm being kidnapped, to have run away and run into, you know, a, a crowded uh, area. So this wasn't exactly a deserted walk, right. right, that there was substantial nightlife. And the appellate court's going to agree and say this is, that's a pretty loose basis for kidnapping. Um, and so because of that, the murder one charge falls. Mm-hmm. And the boys ultimately go to jail for manslaughter. Mm-hmm. So uh, what? Um, so two of them are juveniles, right? Yes. Yes. And are they tried with the other two? They are, because that's the loophole. So they're juveniles, and in the New York court system at the time, you're a juvenile with the exception of murder charges. Oh. Um, and so that was, and so basically because of the charge conspiracy kidnapping, and that was murder one, they're allowed to be tried as adults. Right, I see. So uh, what sentences were handed down to them? Uh, well, ultimately, uh, Mel and Jack are going to uh, get manslaughter charges. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so they're going to go to jail, um, I think, for uh, less than 10 years uh, each. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Bobby ends up in uh, juvenile detention center um, until the age of 21. And, uh, but... Uh, Jerome actually has a case against him dismissed. And he actually ends up having both cases against him dismissed. Um, You know, and and rightfully, I mean, the reality is that although he was present, uh, you know, in neither case did he actually do anything. Um, And the entire case against him was about the conspiracy, um, that he was part of the conspiracy to kidnap and do these crimes, um, but not because he actually participated. Um, So in the end, he ends up, uh, you know, uh, the, both the charges in both cases end up being dismissed. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, just to close the circle, if you know what happened to the four of them. Well, let's see. I know uh, Mel Mittman, as far as I know, um, you know, he did his time in jail and uh, he ended up in Florida. I believe he got married and had kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fairly unremarkable life. Um, I think uh, Jack also served his time, um, ended up eventually uh, married with a child, mm-hmm. um, also fairly unremarkable life. Um, I believe uh, Jerome Lieberman uh, became an attorney. Um, I know that he was uh, graduating from college and heading to law school when the second uh, charges got dismissed uh-huh. against him um, in the Ulrichson case. So um, I think that that's uh, where he ended up. Um, I'm not sure what happened with uh, with Robert Trachtenberg, uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, uh, but I think they went on to lead, uh, you know, fairly normal, unremarkable lives. Yeah. What was the uh, consequence of the trial and the sentences for the comic book industry? Well, that's another, <laughs> right. So that's, that's the other side of it. Um, well, so what ends up happening is, you know, so, so again, there had been a substantial amount of anger um, going on against the comic book industry for quite some time um, and their lack of ability to clean themselves up. So we end up with a situation where, um, you know, the uh, the New York State uh, Legislature uh, creates its own subcommittee, right, to study the, uh, the you know, comics and, and uh, comic books, okay? And uh, they uh, it's run by a man named James A. Fitzpatrick. And Fitzpatrick had long been anti-comics uh, kind of crusader. Um, I mean, well, to be honest, actually, he didn't start out that way. I mean, he had his issues with comic books. Um, he's very Catholic, um, at that time, in the early 40s, the Catholic Church uh, had been coming down against comic books. They were concerned with, the, with including things like Superman, which they felt uh, were too Nietzschean in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, so the Catholic Church had, had long kind of had its own issues with comic books. And so Fitzpatrick, you know, was not thrilled with comic books, but he had long advocated for them to clean themselves up, right? Um, but I think he got very upset after the, the first attempt uh, that he was involved in um, to to clean up comics, okay, in um, and you know basically that it just failed miserably, right? And I think that uh, you know after that he just uh, became very sour to the industry, um, and so he sponsored what was called the Feinberg Fitzpatrick Bill, um, and uh, you know of 
initially they wanted to try to create this comic book um, division in the department, State Department of Education, <laughs> right, to kind of regulate comic mm-hmm. books. Um, and that fails because everyone's like, we don't want to spend that kind of money. And, and again, you know, the push was they should clean themselves up. We don't want government regulation. Um, it, you know, again, because, right, we always think the 50s, everyone jumps to that, but they don't. They really don't. They, don't, they want them to self-regulate. So, um, so, you know, so by the time we get to 1954, he's, like, just had enough of it. And so they have this, um, this meeting, right, and they bring in the new comic czar, okay, by a name, man by the name of Charles Murphy. And, you know, so it's kind of like this big moment. He comes in with all his evidence. He's like, look how we're cleaning up comics and whatever. But the reality is that Fitzpatrick had been in correspondence with Frederick Wortham. And Fitzpatrick at this point was already sick of the industry. and He was sick of, of the years and years of asking him to clean up and kind of being rebuffed by them. So at this point, he just kind of, you know, then just puts Wortham on the stand and says, what do you think? And Wortham just, just decimates right? Charles Murphy's testimony. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because he goes through and he says, well, yeah, right. You're saying that you cleaned up these advertisements, for example, in the back. Um, but here's, you know, I just found these, uh, you know, these, these things that you're saying are out, they're still in, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. And, and were them because of his involvement with the thrill kill case, right? And he had done these interviews with Jack Coslow. So that's what he testifies to. And, um, and of course, again, you know, there, these, there were these horribly egregious, comic books, the Nights of Horror that Jack had been reading, that a lot of crimes were based on, um, and so Wortham brings that right in. And of course, and, and, and in Charles Murphy's defense, I mean, those comics would never have gone through his authority, right? Because they're, they're pornographic comics being published by some underground guy, um, and certainly no one's going to submit them for a stamp of approval, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the reality is, is that, but they're still out there and, and Wortham, of course, is, and, and Fitzpatrick are going to jump on the Brooklyn Thrill Killers and on Jack Coslow in particular to say like, you know, this shows, right? Like here's this kid, this messed up kid who already had problems and he's going to go out and commit crimes based on these comic books that were just a bad influence and gave him awful ideas on, on, on things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was Wortham's position for years, right? Wortham had always advocated, you know, and I think that that's kind of a, a mistake that people have about Frederick Wortham where they're like, oh, he's, you know, saying that just normal kids going to read a comic book and go crazy. You know, I mean, Wortham was a sophisticated criminologist, you know, but what he was advocating was that if you have a messed up kid, you know, left to their own imagination, messed up kids act out in very, um, fairly specific kind of ways. You know, I mean, they're going to, they're going to beat people up or they're going to steal or they're going to do the normal, you know, kind of delinquency things. But, you know, his fear is that, you know, you're handing these kids these very gruesome comic books that are all about just torturing human beings and et cetera. And you're handing this to a messed up child. And now this child has all sorts of fantastic ideas on, on how to act out. Um, that they would not have, per se, come up with on their own. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong about that. Right. Um, so, you know, so that was, and so so what ends up happening because of all this is the New York State Legislature is going to adopt uh, a law that is going to essentially ban crime and horror comics. And they're going to cite the Brooklyn Thrill Killers, um, you know, as one of the main uh, pieces of evidence to show why this law is necessary and, uh, you know, and the ill effects that comic books have um, on, on children and on the, on, on the delinquent mind, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very interesting. People today are at loggerheads about what video games do. I know that my son and daughter really like video games. They really like them. People argue all the time about whether they're a good effect or a bad effect. I don't know what to think. I, I don't know. Of course, then again, my son does not dress up in a vampire cape and go around beating vagrants up. At least I don't think. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he doesn't do that. <laughs> but that's, I mean, you know, what, but one of the issues is that, you know, and I, I think it's, it's interesting because we actually do have, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting issue in America. And I think to me, like, what's changed is our, our sense of community has changed, right, more than the evidence. And I think the evidence has always suggested, and including now the studies, I think, show very clearly mm-hmm. that, you know, video ga- violent video games and, and uh, you know, uh, these other uh, mass media materials 
you know, desensitize children mm-hmm. that they actually do cause uh, adrenaline fluctuations. Uh-huh. You know, there there is a long list of effects actually that we we really know scientifically. We've actually measured scientifically, right? We we've been able to. Uh, you know, just even measure pulse rates and measure uh, adrenal spikes and, and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, there is that reality, right? Um, and I think, like, you know, one of the things I would say is that in the, you know, we're, in the 1950s, what's different is that we happen to be in a period of America, and, of course, I have to caveat this and say, <laughs> right, and, of course, this doesn't apply to everyone, right, because we all know with segregation and sexism mm-hmm. and everything stuff, sure. but... but Overall, America had this idea of uh, a certain sense of community, right? And so there was this absolutely this idea that, you know, if, you know, if these books, if these things are bad for children, right, even if it's not necessarily bad for you, even if you have a normal child or you're a fine child and it won't affect your child, the idea that it could harm other children, right, is enough for you to say, then as a society, we're going to choose to forgo it. Uh-huh. Right. Either it has to be regulated or it has to something has to happen here. And, you know, and I think that, you know, whereas today, like, right, we go very extreme in the other direction. Yeah, we do. Right. I mean, the fact that it could hurt children and in fact, we may have studies that it does hurt children is not my problem as long as I'm allowed to consume. Them. Right, right, right. No, I think you that's know? exactly right. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're you're totally right about that. You know, also, I think that anybody who. Uh, thinks about it for a second, knows that what you feed your head can hurt you or help you. That's not, uh, that's not a difficult concept to grasp. I think. <laughs> well, I, I mean, well, it's interesting. You know, it was actually very interesting because I just did um, a talk uh, a couple months ago, you know, and there's this woman and it was very interesting because she, you know, came, the first thing she said was that she's like, I'm against any censorship, all censorship. Uh-huh. I'm completely against censorship. Well, first of all, I don't think anyone is completely. I mean, there may be, there's a few people, but we all agree that some censorship, right? Yeah, we do. No well, question. very few people are okay with child pornography, yeah, right? Very few right. people are okay with snuff films. You know, right. there, so there's a certain level that we all agree on. But, you know, but she comes out about this, right? And then it's interesting because she's also, you know, like a pacifist. And I'm kind of like, well, but you know, and we all know that, like, you know, the U.S. military uses right, these kinds of video games and these sensory experiences to help train soldiers, mm-hmm. right? These are, these are tools that are well known to be used mm-hmm. to help desensitize, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we're giving them to, to average children. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, what, what are we doing and are we choosing to do yeah, it? I don't know. And I think in the 1950s, we just, we're maybe in some ways more open to asking that question, right? I mean, it's, it's, I think, you know, people, I, I think, have a tendency to condemn the 50s as this very closed-minded time. But in a lot of ways, it wasn't. There was actually uh, a lot of, of uh, different arts and materials and things happening. Um, but I think that people were more willing to question, you know, is this good? Is this good for society? Yeah, is this going yeah. to produce the kind of people that we want to produce? Yeah. And I think, you know, that idea of children as a national project yeah. was something that was much more part of the culture at that time. Yeah. And I think when we look at a situation like this, it's important to keep that in mind instead of just seeing it as this like kind of repressive, you know, like the sexually repressive censorship, like, oh, they want to take away kids' fun reading materials. Right. Well, that's not, no. They, they really just wanted to, to say, is this going to create the kind of person in society that we want? And, and what does that mean? And how do, we, how do we, as a national project, make that happen? Yeah, I used to go to the drugstore and I would buy uh, comic books. Sergeant Rock was my famous favorite. It was very violent, I have to say. The Americans always won. You know, they were gritty and tough and sacrificed for the nation. But like, as I say, I, I take my kids to the comic book store, Modern Marvels, uh, down the street from where I live, next to the Ann Taylor, and there's all kinds of X-rated material in there. Just every imaginable thing. There's also Sergeant Rock, by the way, <laughs> but, and Dungeons and Dragons and everything else. But there's also, I, I mean, I can't even mention it on the podcast. <laughs> it's just disgusting what's in there. Um, you know, it's, it's you know, it, and I, I suppose that's where we've come to. You know, that all that stuff well, has but to be it's also up. a little bit different today because today these things are uh, considered appropriate. You know, there's an adult audience, right? I buy yeah. graphic novels. Yeah, sure. You know, I actually love graphic novels. I buy them. Um, you know, I mean, most of my friends read all sorts of, you know, graphic novels, comic books, whatever. It's, uh, you know, there's an adult audience. And so you can justify yeah. and say 
this X-rated comic book is obviously not meant for a child. It's meant for an adult audience. But it was much harder in 1954 when your entire audience was children. And, you know, the advertisements in the back of the magazine, (laughs) you know, really batch up on that. Because it's like when you have, like, toy guns and toy whips and all sorts of weird stuff that no adult's going to order. It's really hard to say, but, well, this is, this is really meant for an adult. Well, no, right. there's no adults buying it. <laughs> You're not marketing it to adults, and you have children's toys in the advertisement. Right. So I'm pretty sure this is for kids. And that was the point, is yeah. like, you know, if they had tried to cultivate an adult audience, right, then, then it would have been completely different. They could have, then I don't think censorship would have happened. If they had been able to say, these are not for children, no one's supposed to be selling these to children, Right, these are supposed to be for adults, and right. in fact, that's what the law says. The law doesn't, you know, the law really is coming down and saying it, most of the, the law is about people under the age of eighteen. Mm-hmm. It's going to decimate the industry because the industry did not want to put in the money <laughs> to create the kind of art and graphics and whatever and storylines, frankly, that were sophisticated enough for an adult audience. Mm-hmm. So adults simply weren't buying them, mm-hmm. and so that's really what's going to decimate them is, is their own failure to create a market in the, with adults, right? Rather than, you know, they chose to simply market to children and then ultimately they're going to pay the price for that when parents are like, I don't want my kids reading right, this. Right, right, right. That's a good point. Well, uh, Mariah, thank you very much for being on the show. Today we've been talking to Mariah Aiden about her book, The Brick- Brooklyn Thrill Kill Gang and the Great Comic Book Scare of the 1950s. It's a fantastic book. I think you should go out and buy it and read it. You will not be disappointed. Thank you, Mariah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And let me say thank you to everyone who downloads this podcast and listens to it. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the sometimes host of New Books in History, and I hope everybody has a great week.